you know, Katie Milkman talks about the fresh start effect, right? You're more motivated at certain points of time. Uh, we could think about other situations, people online versus people in brick and mortar stores behave differently. Uh, people uh, when they're busy versus when they're not behave differently, right? So I think it's important to start acknowledging that we should segment not just uh, by putting people in different buckets, but the same person could belong to multiple buckets. Welcome to the show, Sir Dilip and Lady Nina. Uh, such an honour to have you on board and uh, so lovely to be chatting to you. And uh, we've also got uh, Lady Louise joining us from Ireland. Uh, Louise works for us and helps run all our community stuff and set this stuff and, uh, and it's, it's lovely, so lovely to have you here as well. Um, for those of you who don't know who Dilip and Nina are, um, they are two of the most incredible behavioral scientists in the world, um, and, uh, incredible authors, uh, incredible lecturers and teachers, and basically just all around wonderful, wonderful human beings. And the reason why we wanted to chat to you today is I think uh, the thing that you're both very good at is taking all of this very complicated academic research and turning it into something that's a bit more understandable by by normal people uh, who maybe aren't, aren't doing this uh, day in day out um, and and doing incredible work in in your field so uh, yeah, it's such an honor to have you have, have everyone here so th thank you very much for joining <laughs> uh, thank you thank you for having us <laughs> and uh, yeah Dylan, I saw, saw you saw you with Rory the other day as well so uh, yeah it's uh, yeah, lovely to have you down and um, I mean I guess uh, uh, I'm sure I've probably missed a little bit out of uh, how I've described to you anyway so uh, Dilip and Nina in whichever order you would like to go uh, do you want to share just a little bit more about uh, what it is that you do just so that everyone's on the same page. Of course so, since you said Dilip and Nina I'll start uh, on, on this occasion. Um, I'm at the University of Toronto, and uh, it's a fairly roundabout journey to get here. So I trained in college uh, in engineering. My first job was actually at an engineering company. I did sales and service at some point in time. Um, this was a company that made these complex earth-moving machines, trucks, loaders, that sort of stuff. Uh, so really expensive uh, pieces of equipment. Uh, and I actually got interested in human behavior at that point in time because, you know, on the shop floor, we would spend countless hours and months trying to improve the torque of the engine and the performance and the hydraulics and so on and so forth. And it turned out most of our customers didn't care. Uh, and and I, I don't mean to say that they actually didn't care at all about the performance, but the attribute level improvements didn't mean much to them. Uh, they were interested in the color of the machine and after sales service and how nicely the service person spoke to them, stuff like that, right? And so I got interested in that. Um, I did a short stint in advertising, got an MBA along the way. Um, and then ended up uh, doing a PhD at the University of Chicago. Uh, in, in initially, I went into the PhD thinking I would sort of specialize in, in marketing or communications. So I, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, uh, to be honest. Um, and then I met people like Steve Hoke and Richard Taylor and Chris Shee, who were on the faculty there. And, and of course, I guess my life changed completely at that stage. So I got exposed to what we now know as behavioral economics. Uh, at that point in time, um, did a thesis, uh, have been in academia since, but as you, as you note, uh, one of the things I'm passionate about is I came to academia to try and solve real world problems. And so uh, many, many years now after finishing my PhD, I feel like uh, we as a field need to do a bit more uh, in order to help practice, be it for-profit businesses or not-for-profits to better use the science. And so that's really what I've been uh, busy doing and be happy to chat more about that as we go through. Uh, but maybe it's time for the Nina story, I guess. Nina story. I'll keep it short. It's, it's not that um, exciting as Dilips is. I did my PhD actually in Germany at the University of Mainz, where I'm from. So I started there and then um, I was very lucky to be able to visit Dan Ariely and Drajan Prelik at MIT 
during my PhD. And that completely changed my role because I was doing a PhD in marketing, traditional marketing, more managerial marketing. And through my stint at MIT, I was introduced to this whole new world of judgment and decision-making that has now in part morphed into behavioral science or behavioral insights. And, you know, um, I basically never left MIT. I mean, that's how it felt. I came there just for two weeks and I ended up staying, I think, six years. <laughs> and then the University of Toronto hired me and I became Philip's colleague. And, uh, um, and from there on, I did more and more research on trying to understand consumers, trying to understand decision-making. And from there, more and more also into, well, how can we help people to actually make better decisions, right? So not just thinking about, okay, well, what helps companies maybe to get consumers to do one thing or another, but what would actually also really help individuals? What would overall improve well-being? And, you know, from there, it just progressed and progressed. And then I had the wonderful opportunity to spend two years also at the World Bank to help them create the behavioral insights unit there. And that was another really eye-opening experience which I had because it showed me that things that we come up with and test in the lab or with small studies even if it is kind of in the field has a whole different complexity when you're now trying to scale it to an anti-population and even more so if you're trying to scale it to a population or an a, a cultural context that you don't necessarily know that you don't understand right because most of our studies are usually in the US um, or, or very, as we call it, weird centered. So the, the Western educated and so on and so on population. So really, really eye-opening experience. And, um, and then Dilip had this idea of this book and, and now we're really trying to make it clearer for practitioners, but actually also for researchers. Where are we? What do we know at this point? And, and what do we need to change or where are the challenges going forward so that we can really use the insights meaningfully, the, the insights that we as researchers are creating. And so now, and then, by the way, I am at, 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 at Boston University. So full circle, I came back to Boston where my whole journey actually started. Oh, it's marvelous. And I, I love the way the similarities between the, the two of you as well, in that it sounds like you, it's it sort of, it was a lot of it was timing. <laughs> you, you happen to be at the right university at the right time and meet the right people. Yes. And then, and, and, and studying the right sort of topic that, that that's, you know, I think I always find it interesting. I spend a lot of my time. I think the first course that we ever made was on behavioral economics with Rory. And so for me, I've, I've been thinking about behavioral economics since probably 2015, which I'm sure is still not that long ago uh, for the field. But um, it's amazing when I chat to people, how few people still know about that. Um, it but, seems but, to but be. Yeah. To, your, to your point, timing is everything, right? I mean, I think yeah. like, even if I look back at my PhD journey, had I been at Chicago three years before or five years after, uh, it would have looked a very different place, right? And it's the same story with the University of Toronto. I mean, I think uh, we had a bunch of golden years between 2007 till I guess even now, uh, but we had people like Nina and a few other colleagues that were all interested. They were, they were great at the science, but they were really interested in making a difference. Uh, and it's rare to find uh, a collection of people at one university. And, and so I think we were really fortunate. But looking back, I mean, uh, you know, I can tell a story about how well planned that whole thing was. But let's face it, it, it was luck, right? And, yeah. and a lot of everything we do is luck. Luck plays a big role. Timing matters. And it's not something we control. Yeah, it's, it's so lovely. I, I mean, you, you, you touched on, both of you touched on so many interesting things. I loved it when you, you were saying that in your old job, it, you know, you were doing your marketing messaging and it was always about tech, tech aspects of, you know, this is how, I don't know, the gearing ratio of the car or whatever. And, right. and actually it means nothing to, to most people. Um, and it, it's, it's that thing that sort of Steve Jobs always, the famous example of Steve Jobs with the, 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 the reframing it from the, the number of megabytes that the 
um, MP3 player held to uh, what was it a thousand songs in your pocket or something? Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, uh, changing that back to the psych- psych- psychology sort of uh, framing instead. And uh, oh my word, Nina, I'd love to chat to you about your work at the World Bank for probably three days, if that's possible. I'd imagine that's fascinating. Uh, trying to deal with cultural contexts around the world. Um, in in your, but I, I I know that we've got to talk about something <laughs> something else. Otherwise, it'll be a weird conversation. But um, what what brought you to the to the new book, uh, the the and um, behavioral science in the world book? Um, how did how did that come about? And uh, and tell us a bit more about that. And obviously, if, if uh, uh, please go to Amazon and buy that book immediately as well. <laughs> so, so maybe maybe on this one, I'll start and I'll take us up to the time that the idea for this book came, and then I'll leave it to Nina because she's the one who shepherded us through through this one. Uh, but when Nina was at U of T, we set up a center together. We call it Bear Behavioral Economics in Action at the Rotman School. Um, and our mission was really to help not just translate knowledge, but co-create knowledge with practice. So we've, we've been doing a bit of that. And as part of that, we started an initiative called Behaviorally Informed Organizations, where the idea was to say, what is it that we can do to help practice truly embed behavioral science in the way they do things? So not just do a trial, uh, but be truly behavioral, right? Um, and, and, and when we thought about it, there were really two buckets of things that we were interested in looking at. One is the organization itself. And, you know, it's obviously no controversy to say that universities are set up to do science. Companies are not. Um, and so if you truly want a company to be behaviorally informed, they have to do a little bit of science. So I mean, I'm not saying they should do a randomized control trial every single day, but there's got to be some scientific element, some method in it, and companies aren't set up to do that. So what can we do to change that? Uh, so my colleague, uh, Catherine Young, who's at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and I put together a book called The Behaviorally Informed Organization. That one talked about the org issues. You know, how do you think about setting up? How do you think about uh, organizing? How do you think about reducing the cost of experimentation? How do we mobilize support? How do we change mindsets? That sort of stuff, right? Uh, and then the other piece of the puzzle was the research itself, which is, uh, you know, we have this kind of interesting model of the world in which scientists produce the research, practitioners consume it. Uh, I happen to think that that's a very simplistic way of thinking about it. We do, you know, both Nina and I believe in the co-creation principle more than the production and consumption. Um, but th- there are some structural issues with the way we produce research and the way we write about it and the way it is consumed uh, that causes all of these translation and scaling challenges. And that's where the idea for In the Wild came. So uh, maybe that's where I'll, I'll toss it to Nina because uh, you know she picked up the ball on that. And here we are now with the book that's ready to sell uh, in a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so the idea was really, so even if I now have rearranged my organization so that, that it is actually able to do sign or more scientific work, how do, how do you even start, right? I mean, there are all these papers that Luke just said that we as academics usually produce. Are we expecting now the practitioner to read through all of them, to understand them? What do they do about the fact that, as it is with science, you sometimes see an effect and you sometimes don't see an effect, or maybe you see the opposite effect, right? And 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 rather than than letting the practitioner maybe conclude, oh, if the if the results are all over the map, maybe the science cannot be trusted in the first place. Let's actually explain what they can do with those insights. And also let's explain to them if they are using those insights, what to expect or what are the um, dangers or, or, the, or the warning signs to look out for? Because those are usually not conveyed in a paper. I can write a paper that shows an amazing effect and a large effect. Let's for example, say on, on um, if, if I show that if I am reminding people to fill out their tax forms in time, right? Most likely, you know, that will be very successful. But if you want to scale that, you may want to consider something simple as well. 
how am I actually going to remind people? What vehicle am I using? Are people trusting that vehicle? And more importantly, are they even paying attention to that vehicle? Because if they're not paying attention to it, that intervention will not really work. So there are all these other aspects that are part of a paper that we usually do not convey. And the purpose of this book was really to try and pick a few of these big effects, such as social norms, um, and many others that I'm now <laughs> blanking on. Um, and, and let's have the experts that have written about them say something about, well, what are the kind of the key features that need to be in place so that the likelihood of success is high? And then we, we also pick some experts that are really experts on certain topics, such as financial decision-making or health or diversity and inclusion. And what do we know in general about what kind of things have been tested in those domains? What seemed to work? Which ones seem to be more sensitive to little changes in the context, while which one seems to be working most of the time? So that we really increase the learning for practitioners. This book is really primarily written for practitioners to help them understand what to do with this research that we are creating and oftentimes sadly not as Philip said co-creating with practitioners. Sorry, <laughs> it's on me. Um, yeah, so it sounds like it's a sort of a cheat sheet for all the core industries as they should buy this book and then the, it'll tell them uh, the, the, the sort of the generalizations to a lot of stuff that at the moment is quite tricky for them to find um, or quite hard for them to figure out, which is absolutely incredible. So, so, so thank you. <laughs> and, but and but Chris, it's, it's also a cheat sheet to complexity in the sense that yeah. oftentimes we use a grip sheet in exams to say, here's just 10 things I need to know. Uh, this cheat sheet tells you that it's not as simple as that, uh, that in fact, there are more complexities. And, and, and so you're right in the sense it's a guide, uh, but it's unlike a crib sheet, which tries to, I guess the, the word that people use is dump it down. Uh, we try and do the opposite uh, because the field is complex and it's not as straightforward as, as just replicating what other people did. Well, what were some of the, the sort of more interesting projects that you, you looked at or examples that you looked at in the, in the book? Were there any that particularly stood out to you that, were, that you were thinking one thing maybe and, and actually something else came out or anything like that? So I, I can talk to that because one of the chapters that I've co-authored in the book actually gives a bunch of examples of situations where we went in expecting something to happen and something else happened or you know, things didn't happen as neatly as we expected them to happen. So um, one of the projects uh, is in Mexico. We were trying to work uh, with, uh, with uh, the pension authority to try and get people to contribute more to their voluntary uh, pension plans. Uh, and you know, one of the standard tricks in the book is to make information more visual, more engaging. So rather than sending people a dense letter telling them uh, how to contribute and why they should contribute, we just made it visually more appealing. And, uh, and the idea is if you make things visually appealing, people engage more with it. If they engage more, information is more salient, uh, they will make more voluntary contributions. So uh, to cut a, a complex set of results short, we did find a marginal improvement in contribution rates, uh, but there was a big uh, sort of heterogeneity in that there were two clusters. For about half the people, uh, contribution rates went up massively. For the other half, they actually went down, right? And so we're trying to think about what's going on here. And there was something unique to the pension system in Mexico, which is that it is required by law that your pension statement lists the performance of your fund relative to every other fund that you could have invested in on that statement, right? Now, what ended up happening was if I made the information salient and visually attractive, more people looked at this information, right? For the people whose funds were in the top half, they were motivated. They said, oh yeah, you know, I, I see the need to do this. My fund is doing well, let me put in more more dollars. For the ones whose fund wasn't doing well, we got the opposite effect. Right? Is people were saying, oh, yeah, this is important stuff. My fund isn't doing well. Let me just put money somewhere else. Right. And, and so I, I think this is one of the ideas that we talk about a fair bit in the book is we often have these, you know, conventional wisdoms like simplify information, make it more visually appealing, which is great. 
but there are boundary conditions. Like it doesn't always help you. Uh, the, the other example also uh, is in some work that I did with a bunch of uh, collaborators in South Korea. We were looking at, uh, you know, credit card text alerts. The, every time you tap your credit card, you might actually get a text alert. Nowadays, it comes through the app. But this was data back from 15 years ago. Um, and I and many others had done research showing that a, people spend a lot more on credit cards compared to cash. Of course, this research is dated. This was done back in 1999 when credit card were the next gen payment methods. Now, of course, we've gone way beyond that. Uh, but the idea was the more frictionless you make payment, uh, the more people overspend. And, and, and so the question we were asking back then is how do I overcome this overspending? The way I do it is to give people feedback. So just remind people that they've spent because they tend to forget. And so in all of our lab studies and our pilot studies, we gave people reminders, people went to a hypothetical store, they tapped their card, uh, there was an are you sure message which said, by the way, you've spent or you've already spent X dollars this month, are you sure you want to continue with this transaction? Uh, and a lot of people chose to change their mind. Now, it turns out when the government of South Korea introduced this as a national program with text messaging, uh, we found on average the opposite effect. When people started getting text alerts, on average, they spent more, right? Again, there were two groups. There was a group of about 15 to 16% of the heavy spenders for whom it actually worked. The, the text alert actually reduced their spending. But for a much bigger part of the population, 84, 85%, uh, they spent more. Uh, and it turns out there was a, you know, a, obviously in hindsight, a seemingly small, but a very important difference between the way the original study was conducted. Uh, in the original studies, you got the reminder on the same screen, on the same interface that you were making the purchasing decisions. Now they went into your phone, right? And so uh, we sort of explained this through a phenomena that's called digital dependency. People now started trusting their phones to keep track of their spending. They invested much less of an effort in doing so themselves. Right? So in our interviews, people would say things like, oh, if I ever needed a record, it's in my phone. And so they were even less aware of their spending. Right? So uh, again, a small uh, but important detail in the way in which the administration, in, in which uh, the intervention was administered had such a big effect. Right? Um, and so th that's really what motivated us to think about uh, I mean, Richard Taylor calls these supposedly irrelevant factors, right? Like it shouldn't matter how you, uh, how you send the message. It shouldn't matter uh, whether it was done in the morning or the evening, but it, guess what? It matters. And so, um, so that was really sort of, you know, for me, uh, an interesting set of data to work with. Uh, and that's inspired a lot of others, other research. Yeah, and if I just may so add to that. So the book really points that out, right? Because again, when you read a paper, it's very rare, especially with older papers, that we would actually specify that amount of detail in, in exactly how the design that, that the participants in our experiment saw how it actually looked like, like where was a page break? What was the font size? What were the colors used, right? All these kind of things you usually didn't really convey in research papers. So nowadays things are somewhat better and that we now have open science frameworks where we can put all the information on there. But then it's maybe overwhelming, it's too much, it's not really sorted. And so this book points out that it's important to pay attention to that. And at least for some of the chapters, some of the experts even point then out some very specific of these um, points that, that, that need to be considered. And, and the other thing that I just want to emphasize that Dilip was also um, just talking about is this idea of heterogeneity. So the difference between people. We usually, and it's a function among others of, of the number of people in our experiments and the power that we have, we usually just look at average effects, right? On average, how will this group of and oftentimes students or workers on Amazon Mechanical Turk or prolific, how are they acting in comparison to a different group that maybe did not see that intervention or did see a different intervention, right? But we do oftentimes not have the power so the number of people to really look into, well, are there differences between people? Are there certain types of people that are more affected by one intervention and, and maybe not affected by that same intervention? And, and 
another group that is affected in the opposite way. So this heterogeneity, we don't usually look at, and oftentimes also when we run studies, there isn't much heterogeneity to begin with. But when I'm scaling something from a group of 200 people to like a population of, I don't know, 50 million people, 60 million people, there are all kinds of people. They have all kinds of concerns and different attention spans and all kinds of different things. And so if you take that into account, that then leads suddenly to something that um, John List refers to as the voltage drop, right? Where, where suddenly the effect that, you are, that you're getting, you're scaling something is so much lower than what was reported in the paper. And so that is also something that, 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 that we talk about in, in our book so that practitioners are aware that this is very likely to happen because of a reason such as that people are different and that there's a lot of heterogeneity. When, when you're doing the, these working out sort of these different groups of people, is there a favorite method or, or way that you look at them? It's, it's that sort of double barrel thing where we know that it's not good to put people into buckets, but we kind of have to put people into buckets. <laughs> I know I remember reading about, is it the ocean framework, the big five? Like, what, Is there a preference that, that, that you've both used? Um, probably did so, it, I guess. Th this is actually a great question because I've grappled with this a fair bit. Uh, with your permission, I'm going to go back to sort of the oldest trick in the marketing book segmentation, right? Um, so to, to build on what Nina said, uh, we've often done segmentation of putting people in buckets as a function of who they are. I think the underlying philosophy is people are different from each other. Behavioral science teaches us that people are not only different from each other, they're different from themselves, right? And, and so, you know, Katie Milkman talks about the fresh start effect, right? You're more motivated at certain points of time. Uh, we could think about other situations, people online versus people in brick and mortar stores behave differently. Uh, people uh, when they're busy versus when they're not behave differently, right? So I think it's important to start acknowledging that we should segment not just uh, by putting people in different buckets, but the same person could belong to multiple buckets, right? Um, now, back in the days when we first started doing segmentation, right, we weren't able to observe human behavior uh, and act on it. Uh, it just wasn't possible. We didn't have the data. Today we can, right? We can actually track what people are doing on the web. So, so imagine a world in which you can see uh, on, on, let's say, an Amazon portal or on Google or whatever else, you know, the kind of thing people are searching for uh, and the speed at which they're searching. And then you could say things like, aha, this seems like a person in a hurry. Um, and they seem to be a person from a certain demographic. And I can now marry those two things to customize an offering or a message or whatever that might be, right? That same person on a different day might be in a different bucket because now they're not in a hurry and they're taking their time, right? Uh, and, and so I think today with big data, call it whatever you want, machine learning, big data, all of the advances and the, and the fact that we have digitized so many behaviors, uh, we can actually be reactive in the way we bucket. And that's the approach we use in some of our work in, in, in Mexico and in, in South Korea is we ex post after people have been treated to the intervention uh, in, in, a, in a trial setting. We can see ah, the kind of people that reacted to this intervention uh, were of a certain age and a certain demographic and seem to have a certain behavioral trait. Uh, so that when we scaled up, we can then put people in the appropriate bucket for that intervention and only for that intervention. Uh, but for a different intervention, they might belong to a different bucket. And I think that's sort of, you know, something that uh, technology and data now lets us do. Uh, so the, the answer to your question is, uh, no, we don't have a preferred method. I think uh, we recognize that people belong to different buckets for different things and at different points in time. Uh, and as long as we drill this sort of insight into practitioners, because Chris and Luis, you've probably been in board meetings where people are agonizing about Generation Z versus millennials as if they're all the same. Uh, I think that thinking has to change. And, and now with, with data, we can change that thinking. This is what I'm The co-creation with organizations is, is, is a real treasure box for a researcher in particular, right? Because if you run experiments with an organization that has the capabilities to really report so many different data points 
you can get a much richer view. Um, and 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 it also shows that I think it's 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 really important that that, that we as behavioral scientists also realize the more diverse um, a team, the better probably it is, and that we probably want people in there that that have knowledge in computer science, that have maybe knowledge in statistics and a bunch of other things that go beyond necessarily our expertise. If you really wanted to take advantage of all that information and try to understand in which context, which person behaves in, in what way. That makes a lot of sense. I remember it reminded me of this funny story that Rory Sutherland spoke about when he was saying that when you go to ATM cash machines, he never wants to see his bank balance. <laughs> and I'd imagine some people it's really helpful or some people not so helpful. I'd imagine for credit cards, if you told them there must be a massive difference if, if the app says, you know, you've got this much left on your credit versus you've spent this much, um, well, would I be mean, fascinating. Simple interventions like budgeting tools, right? I mean, um, banks and governments have invested a lot of time and energy creating sort of these really complex and elaborate tools to help people budget. And I think we've gone to a point where the complexity doesn't work for everyone. Uh, people, people learn from budgeting in different ways. I mean, for some people, budgeting helps you because it tells you how much you've got left and what's the ceiling on how much you should spend. For other people, it just, the act of thinking about it just makes them a little bit more prudent as they spend. So if I'm the second type, then making the tool incredibly complex is actually a massive turn off, right? I don't want to take the time entering pieces of data. So I think we really need to start thinking about this heterogeneity piece, right? And not, not everybody and not all the time are going to act the same way. So I think we need to build that into the way we design products and interventions. If I can actually, <laughs> if I can add even more complexity to what we have been discussing so far. I mean, if you also think about it, most of our research that we're publishing in academic journals tests one-off interventions, single time. So I'm exposing you to a nudge sentence one time, I show the immediate effect and that's it. A practitioner wants to know, well, what happens if somebody is exposed to that same intervention over a longer period of time? Uh, let's say, every week or, 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 or every month, every day. Like, does it wear off? Could it backfire? We don't know. Um, in general, anything that is more long-term when it comes to interventions, it's just so hard to run experiments and data collection over a long period of time because as researchers, I have, we have the incentive to at some point publish a paper. So I have to stop somewhere, right? And if I have a nice result after one day, hey, let's just talk about that, right? But um, those kind of things are missing, I think, from the discussion. Oftentimes, we as researchers fail to mention that. But practitioners, they have to know those insights, or at least they have to care about those insights. It's fascinating. And um, the, uh, the, I was going to ask a, a bit of a random question, but uh, and feel free to, whichever Nina or whoever wants to go first, I'm, I'm good either way. Whoever whoever thinks of it first, probably. I was going to say, what's the behavioral intervention that you've personally worked on that you're most proud of? Uh, that that that's perhaps sort of made a you know you 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 went home that night or you went home three weeks later, whenever the thing had been done, and you were like, yeah, I was part of that. That was uh, that was amazing. Um, Take your time. It's okay. I can edit I'll the let podcast. Nina go. I, I, I can think of at least a few things that I would have said if I were her. <laughs> um, I'm always very critical of my work. So um, when if, I, if I'm being asked what am I proud of, you know, I always feel like, well, I'm always making, I feel that my contributions are very, very small. <laughs> but, um, but I do think our recent paper on um, that we ran with the Ontario Finance Ministry on taxation, where we actually had the opportunity to expose organizations for two consecutive years in a row to the same intervention. So the intervention wasn't something we call an implementation intention, where we simply just reorganized 
a letter that you would receive if you were late paying your taxes. So we didn't add new information about what happens to you, but we just reorganized it so that we made it very clear, hey, paying your taxes is actually very simple. You have to do it by this day in this way um, and you can do it in an online way or, 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 well, I don't know the details anymore, but it was like, it's simple as three steps. It's not rocket science. Companies have been paying their taxes before, though they have done it successfully in the past. But yet doing this really increased the number of organizations that pay their taxes faster. And using this exact same match next year again worked equally well. So what we learned was from that is if you're exposed to that particular nudge once, are you more likely to pay next year? No. But if you're exposed to it next year, again, it works as well as the year before. So I'm proud of that because it's very rare these days or so far that nudging interventions are being done with actual organizations. Um, and it's really rare that you have the opportunity to try the same match over and over and over again. I mean, this was not over and over, it was for two consecutive years, right? But it's a, it's a nice start. So in that sense, I'm proud that I was able to, to participate in something like that. But at the same time, there are still so many other questions that we don't know. Well, bravo. And uh, I'm sure the Canadian government uh, thanks you uh, <laughs> for your service. <laughs> so did it. Okay, so I think the one that I'm most proud of is actually an imperfect experiment from many years ago. It's imperfect because if I view it from sort of pure experimental cleanliness, there were all kinds of problems with it. Uh, but this was done in rural India, helping laborers in a cash economy better save more. And the idea was simple. The idea was to earmark money. Uh, so we essentially uh, worked with a social work agency when laborers got paid cash. Uh, we'd work out a budget with them. And the challenge was if they had the cash in their pockets and there wasn't a bank in the village at that point in time. So they just had cash with them. They'd spend it. Uh, and, and so we just put some of that earmark money in the cash in a separate envelope. We just called it cash. We just called it savings. Right. And people save more. Um, and then we had other variations on that. We put pictures of their children. You know, once you had a picture of your children and you were saving for your child's education, they were less likely to open it, stuff like that. So, uh, again, I'll emphasize that it, experimentally, it wasn't clean uh, for obvious reasons. Like people spoke to each other and they were all in the same village. And then at some point in time, a bank decided to set up a branch. And so uh, if I was if I was a hard-nosed ivory tower critic, I would have said there's lots of problems with this with this research, but you know, it, it changed people's lives. So, so I'm proud of that. Uh, the other one that I'm actually proud of is not even uh, scientifically valid evidence. Um, it's, a, it's a project where we were trying to get people to, uh, uh, to see their doctor once a year for an annual checkup. Uh, and it turns out this was an insurance company we were working with. Um, you know how it works. You prepay a sum and then you have to call your call a doctor that's in the list to get your checkup. Nobody does it. Uh, only about 15 or 16% of the people did it, right? Uh, and so in, in a little pilot, one of the things we did was we randomly assigned people appointments. We just say, Chris, you know, thank you for buying the product. I've assigned you to see Dr. Majar. Uh, on, I don't know, July the 17th. Uh, if you can't make it, give, a, give them a call, right? Magically, people went to see their doctor. Uh, so I don't think people were busy at all. That's the reason we got. They just didn't want to pick up the phone. And I think those are the little frictions uh, that trip people up. So I love that one. Again, you know, it's not a scientific experiment. It, there was no randomization, none of that stuff, but it worked. That's amazing. And I, I remember, um, I think it was Dan Bennett was telling me that you also uh, are very kindly responsible for more recycling happening in London. Uh, oh, so, yeah, so <laughs> you sort of helped almost double the number of bins or, or yeah. something, if I remember rightly. And cool. so, so bravo. Um, Louise, I wondered whether you could ask some questions, because I remember when, uh, before the podcast started, when I was chatting to you earlier in the week, um, you were saying that that you had previously met Dilip, I think, through was it lockdown book reviews? Is that right? Uh, no, so um, yeah. <laughs> oh. So Dilip, whilst 
uh, we were in lockdown, you uh, were running a series of events where you had guests with their new books, which I just found That's really, right. yeah, I really enjoyed that. You're a super right. person to interview people and sort of see insights. And was this something you were doing before lockdown or was it, was it launched sort of as a, as a service, as it were, through lockdown? No, it, it did happen before the lockdown as well, but it was obviously in the brick and mortar world. And so we'd be happy if 100 people showed up to one of those gatherings. But now we had like 600 and 1,000 and the world was a stage. So I think a lot of people saw the lockdown as a constraint. I saw opportunity. We were able to actually do a lot more in terms of even work, right? Co-creational work with people, with partners. It was easier to schedule meetings and get more parties into the into the same online room. Uh, but no, it did. It 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 was a tradition that has been in place uh, for a while. It just it grew. Did you interview Nina? <laughs> so you could interview each other on your. <laughs> we could do that. We could do, our, our colleagues are probably tired of uh, hearing us argue in any case, so. <laughs> Sorry, Nina, go for it. Ask another question. I know that you, you, you had lots of, lots, of, lots of amazing things that we were chatting about. Yes, yeah, so um, what I really like about your book in particular is that it is bringing behavioral science out to the lab, and that really seems to have been there's a real vogue for it at the moment and I mean, particularly what I noticed when I've been looking around for in Ireland where it doesn't really seem to have kicked off to a large degree and you'll notice that maybe somebody in a financial institution will put up an article and they'll be talking about bringing behavioral economics but it seems like it's these rogue people and I can picture them sort of going into a meeting and saying something like oh, I've read this book and I've seen a way that I think we could use behavioral science. But it's a big leap, isn't it, it for, for then a company? So this is, this is what interests me because so many people ask, how can we use behavioral science in practice? Mm -hmm. But you've then got to get your company behind you, haven't you, to be doing these experiments. And they are really they're always unique experiments each time someone brings it so that that's what interests me this giant leap as it were yeah and, and so we write about some of these issues in the first book in fact I think one of the big things that was a friction for people uh, were you know if it isn't broken why should we fix it right like things are working fine I'm segmenting by age and nothing seems to be wrong I think the problem is you obviously don't know how it could have been uh, had you done things differently? So I think that's that's part of it. Uh, the, the one thing I learned, and I suspect Nina has something similar to say, but let me say my piece and then I'll, I'll see if she has something similar to, to add is, uh, I, I spent a year with the federal government here in Canada. Um, and again, it was a time when the government was learning the ropes of behavioral science. And the question was, how do we best build it into the system? Uh, obviously, we started small. We tried to get early evidence. And I think there was nothing like data to show that it works. Uh, but it was critically important, I felt, to pick projects that weren't actually a pet project for anyone or a pet initiative for anyone in the organization, right? Prime Minister cared about diversity, let's stay away from diversity. Uh, Finance Minister cared about pensions, let's stay away from pensions, right? Why? Because then they don't have sort of, you know, they don't have any reservations about letting you do it. So we picked sort of benign things, right? Wouldn't it be great if people renewed their driver's license online instead of coming in person? Everybody loved that. Right? It, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, a political point for anyone in, in the organization, or wouldn't it be great if people filed taxes online instead of in person, right? Uh, and then we showed success, and then people started seeing the power of it. So I, I think, you know, flying almost under the proverbial radar, working on projects that people weren't like passionately attached to or opposed to uh, was a great way to start. And, and once you have data and you say, look, you know, I, I just like, I understood the human behavior, the friction, the challenges, overcame them and here's the result. Then people were more willing to try it out on, on more consequential things. Um, I don't know, Nina, if you had this, a, a similar observation at the World Bank, uh, in terms of how to popularize it? Um, 
I actually wanted to address something else and not necessarily how to popularize it, but but um, just wanted to point out that I think some of the reservations that organizations have stem from the fact that um, like the nature of experiments or, or, or the reason why we run experiments is, is because we don't necessarily know how something will work out. We have a sense, right? And based on some theories and what we know before, we want to try something, but we don't necessarily know what the outcome will be. And I think in organizations that are still oftentimes viewed as you may not be then really the right person for this job. You may not have the knowledge, you may not have the skills because how can you not know? And so feeling comfortable with this idea that that doing experimentation is actually a good thing because you can never really fully know, but running these experiments will give you evidence and you can make better, more higher quality decisions based on evidence. So I think this is a change in how organizations are thinking and, 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 and that really requires from an organizational perspective, really thinking through if I want that an organization adopts more behavioral science, how can I instill this kind of thinking and really have it be the, 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 the connecting tissue across all the departments and all the levels. I think that that is that is a big challenge and also recognizing if you then run an experiment and you find out that something that something we can up with can actually work better than what you already have that this is then not backfiring on the person that had implemented the original process, right? Because you may also be against experimentation because you don't want to have a result that shows that what you've been doing so far was not so good, right? So again, it's about how do you change that in an organization that one, it's okay to run experiments. It doesn't mean that you're not skilled or don't have the knowledge. And second, no matter what the outcome is, it's okay, it doesn't affect what we are thinking of you and how you have so far handled things. I love that the examples that you both gave were such simple approaches. Again, I think that seems to come across often is as soon as you're saying, oh, it's behavioral science, it's behavioral economics. It says, oh, it's going to be complicated. And then when you speak to people and say, oh, well, it might just means something as simple as half of your mailing list receive a letter with your original format and the other half receive it with an alternative version and we'll just see what the response is. And I think when you start to break it down to these simple approaches, you know, maybe more people come on board, but they do seem to almost add, add a cerebral difficulty to it, which doesn't need to be there. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. I think part of it is a communication challenge. I think people expect uh, folks like me and Nina to be A, boring, B, dense, C, uh, speaking Greek. Uh, and, and so they're <laughs> often surprised when we don't do any of those things. Uh, but I, I think you're right. I think as, as a community, I don't think behavioral scientists have done a particularly good job of being behavioral in their communications. Um, our our papers are dense, and of course they are because they cater to a different audience. But you know, many many of us don't invest in simplifying it and making it appealing to practitioners. So I think that those are things that we as a field have to take a long, hard look at and say, how can practitioners better understand what we're doing? Because I don't think we should expect people to read our journal papers. I mean, I barely can read them uh, when, when they're all. <laughs> yeah. And on Krishna, Krishna's favorite subject, which is nudge stock. Um, uh, that's where I first came across you, Dilip, in 2020 when Ogilvy's nudge stock yes. uh, in digital and went online. And I mean, in my mind, what Rory and the rest of the team do there in nudge stock to make the subject of behavioral science more accessible and more appealing is really a marvelous job. And I think maybe we can all learn something from them in terms of delivering it in a sort of exciting and um, easy, easy way to understand. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, I think the message is that there's a difference between 
complexity of the science and complexity of the narrative. I think we tend to confuse the two. Just because a science is complex doesn't mean the narrative needs to be complex, right? The things that you do as an organization to deal with the complexity of human behavior are simple. Uh, as you say, it's it might be as simple as just coming up with three different groups and trying different messages. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. I think there are more elegant ways of communicating and, and diffusing the science within the organization. I know. Uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna almost run out of time, so I'll try and uh, uh, figure out a way to wrap this up neatly and tie a bow in it. But uh, I, I, I guess um, a huge thanks for not speaking Greek. Um, uh, th that would have made this uh, way more uh, difficult. Um, and thank you both so much for helping to make the subject so much more accessible and approachable. Uh, to even uh, people like myself, <laughs> uh, I definitely cannot read a, a, an academic paper very well. Um, so yeah, th thank you so, so much. And um, obviously, if anyone's listening from, from government or companies and, uh, and you want to uh, do some incredible interventions yourself, then please do reach out to Dilip and Nina uh, <laughs> and uh, they can help you uh, collect taxes, uh, get more people to recycle, uh, save money, um, and, and many more amazing good things. Uh, how's the best way to people to get in touch with you? Um, email is always great. Uh, all you have to do is go to the Google search box and put our names in and you'll find an email address uh, or <laughs> visit our web pages. Uh, again, all people have to do is go to your favorite search engine and type bear as in the animal uh, and Toronto. And that'll open up the whole world of the work we've done as well as ways in which to reach us. <laughs> and I'll recommend following Dilip and Nina on Twitter. And everybody's always so surprised when I say this, but really there's some fantastic conversation goes on on Twitter and the science community are extremely generous in sharing insights and new papers. It's a really super place to follow people or even engage in conversation with them as as Dilip regularly does. Oh and I've got a I've got a final question before we sign off. Um, it's very it's very serious and very important. It's um uh, would you rather fight 100 horse-sized ducks or 100 duck-sized horses? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll... <laughs> As an engineer, I'll go with the horses. That's where you right. get the power. Duck, ducks, you'd rather fight a hundred duck-sized horses. Okay, exactly. marvelous. Nina? I, um, it's a rule of thumb. I just do what Dilip does, so. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, just do what Dilip does. That's a, uh, good advice uh, in general, I'm sure. Um, thank you so, so much for, for joining and taking the time to say, uh, say hi and, and share some of your incredible thoughts. And uh, I, I really hope and look forward to chatting to you again soon. Uh, thank you so, so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.